0: All right, Uh, as Gabrielle shared, Mark chapter 6, verse 30 through 44, this is a a section of scripture, kind of jumping back into the story that we left off of a couple weeks ago. Um, And I'm just going to start reading in verse 30, and we'll go straight through that story. I'll preach it. We'll respond to it in worship. This is what the gospel writer Mark says. "'cause they were like sheep without a shepherd. "'And he began to teach them many things. "'And when it grew late, his disciples came to him "'and said, this is a desolate place "'and the hour is now late. "'Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside "'and villages and buy them uh, something to eat.' "'But he answered them, you give, something to, you give them something to eat.' "'And he said to Jesus, they said to Jesus, "'Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread "'and give it to them to eat?' And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five loaves and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish Among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah. On the heels of a commissioning, uh, for those of you that were here, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, this story started Back in verse seven, when Jesus called all of his disciples and sent them out two by two. He sends them out two by two and commissions them to do three different things. Proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, go from house to house, don't take too much stuff, take your shirt, take your, you know, your cloak, take a staff, don't take too much stuff. I want you to go from house to house proclaiming and praying and kicking out demons. And if some people don't accept you, wipe the dust off of your feet and go on to the next house and if they accept you, stay a little bit. And that was the charge. And that story gets interrupted by a tragic set of circumstances where John the Baptist meets an untimely end in a prison. And now we pick it back up right after that with the apostles returning to Jesus, telling him all that they had done and taught. This is where we pick up the story. Where we pick up the story, you might resonate with, is that life is full sometimes. Life with Jesus especially is full. And we have a house to house itinerant team proclaiming and praying and exercising demons at great cost to some of them, like John the Baptist. The point of this passage is a life of following Jesus can sometimes feel incredibly full. Some of you might not even like or appreciate the term full, which is intentional. You might just say, life is busy. Life is packed. It's too full. And if you notice, if you go through that list that the apostles were, were commissioned by Jesus to do, it's almost all good stuff, isn't it? That's probably what marks a lot of our lives in here. We're doing a lot of stuff, and probably, to be honest, a lot of it is good things. And we see at the very beginning of the story, good things are happening. Against all odds, the church of Jesus Christ is advancing, and the disciples, even apart from Jesus, are doing some pretty cool stuff. They're casting out demons, they're healing the sick, they're praying, they're proclaiming the kingdom, and things are happening in their midst. They come back to tell Jesus, this is awesome. Sometimes when life is full, it's usually, at least in my experience, perhaps in yours, full of a lot of good things ministry that we're supposed to do, responsibilities that we've taken on, opportunities that we're faced with. And herein lies the great paradox of Christian living, this thing that we're trying to do together of following this Messiah, Jesus Christ. Herein lies the paradox of Christian living. Most of what derails your soul will come from good things. It's not like most of us in this room woke up this morning on our way to church contemplating whether we were gonna rob a bank, right? We don't just wake up in the morning, you know, uh, steeped in vices. What derails the soul is often an imbalance of pretty good things. For some of you, you might be a brand new Christian Maybe you were one of those that got baptized a few months ago, and as is the case with brand new Christians, there's this fresh passion to follow the Lord. You're like, oh, I just left my old life. I just discovered a new life in Jesus. Let me sign up for everything that the church does for all of eternity. For some of you, maybe that's not your situation. Maybe you just have a restless, apostolic personality. You're like, you're just like starting stuff. You wanna get busy, you wanna do stuff for the Lord, and as soon as you start one thing, you wanna start another. It's not even a personality thing, it's just the cultural milieu that we find ourselves in, where hundreds of people, thousands of people right now are starting to step out of their homes and go to Trader Joe's. There's a sense of our city opening up, the world opening up, businesses are branching out, remote learning has created more opportunities than we had before and so maybe in the middle of all that we've been through in a year and a half there's also this sense of maybe nervous excitement maybe life is going to change and we're looking at how we can be involved in that maybe this is bleeding into our spirituality some of us in this room have maybe been questioning a lot of things and there's been a spiritual upheaval for the last year and a half where we're, we're starting to reckon with our own faith, reckon with our place in the church and our place in the city, and we're asking good, deep questions, but all of this coming together means more things to do. Most of what derails the person's soul comes from good things, not necessarily bad things. The Bible has a term for what I'm talking about. It usually just says idol. We have idols. And in the Old Testament especially, and then uh, sometime later in the New Testament, idols took on a particular shape and form. Uh, They were carved out of metal and precious uh, precious metals. Sometimes they were carved out of wood. You might think of the golden calf in Exodus where people would carve out a god and they would bow down before it and worship it. And sometimes with our first century Western minds and ears, we read that description of an idol and say, oh, I haven't made anything, I haven't made a golden calf today, I'm good. But the truth is an idol is far deeper than the form. We could describe an idol simply as that which takes ultimate precedence in our heart. I love the way that Tim Keller uh, describes an idol. He says, idols are usually good things that have become ultimate things. It's not usually the bad things, but the blessings in life, the good stuff, the opportunities, the resources, the money, the relationships that have elevated themselves in our heart to a place where we then begin to hope in them and look to them for our security. And I don't know where you're at this morning, but I imagine that your plate might be full. And that your life might be full. And on that plate might be both good and bad things. Who knows? You do. And what I want to invite you into on the heels of verse 30 is to take, to pause and to just take an inventory. Because I don't know what you're going through or what you have faced, but. You do, and I love the psalmist's request in Psalm, I think it's 139, God examine my heart and see if there's any wayward way within me so that you can lead me in the path of everlasting life. And so I just wanna invite you right in this moment to just take a brief inventory of your life. What do you have on your plate? It might actually be all good stuff. And here's what I want you to do as soon as you take an inventory. I want you to then look at the plate that you have, if I can keep using that analogy. Life is full, what's on your plate? And I want you to sense, does that plate that you're currently carrying bring you peace or does it bring you anxiety? I'm not talking about the anxiety that comes from fight or flight, like when a kid walks into the street and our body immediately shifts into gears and we can't think straight and we just grab our kid by the wrist and pull them into safety. I'm not talking about the anxiety that comes when we have a huge project at work and we're feeling that creative energy to face something that we've never faced before. That's all good. I'm talking about the chronic anxiety that just never leaves. You go to sleep with it. You wake up the next day with it. That's what the Bible speaks of. That's the type of fear the Bible speaks of when, for example, Paul says, God has not given me the spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. I want you to examine your heart with the Holy Spirit and take an inventory. What's on your plate today? And does it bring you peace or does it bring you anxiety? If you live in a place of chronic anxiety, your soul might be alerting you to something that's wrong. It might be trying to get your attention, like a siren designed by God in the deepest part of who we are. It might be saying, stop. Unfortunately, in our performance-driven culture, tired is often just associated with weakness. I remember being told when I was a kid, pain is just weakness leaving the body. That might be true in some cases. But it colors the way that we see our lives. You might be exhausted right now, but you might also not be willing to admit that, even in a church, for fear that people will think that you're weak, you're not spiritual enough, you don't do enough for the Lord, so on and so forth. And it's at this point that I want to turn your eyes to the Messiah that we follow, who when life is full, does what, let's just admit it, what few leaders will do not only for themselves, but for the people following them. Read with me verse 31 through 32, and he said to them, his disciples, come away by yourselves, to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. This is unbelievable. This is incredible. I think growing up I had trained myself to only spot the words of Jesus that were full of activity and ministry. I just never paid any attention to the countless times Jesus just walked by the lake by himself. <laughs> Where he just didn't say anything. He was alone. He was in prayer. He was in solitude. I just, tra- I think it was the busyness of my culture and my, uh, my, my mindset that just kept me from even seeing those verses. And yet here it is. And many more like it. He calls his disciples disciples. By the way, after a pretty successful weekend of ministry, they're casting out demons, my friends. They're healing the sick. They're getting stuff done. And any other corporate CEO in that situation would have said, let's go harder. They've got momentum. Things are happening. This is a time to move. And the leader of the greatest movement that the world has ever seen, Jesus Christ, then cuts into the momentum and says, you know what, you need a nap. Never underestimate the spiritual significance of a nap and a snack. Amen. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. When life is uh, full, Jesus Christ calls us to rest. I wanna unpack what rest means by unpacking some of the words that Mark uses here. First, Jesus calls them to a desolate place. Desolate, Desolate, the word for desolate means literally a wilderness or a desert. In this context, it probably just means a lonely place. So Jesus is saying, get by yourself. Why? They're around crowds, they have no time to themselves. Life is busy, life is full. The needs that they're facing will never stop. Calls them to a desolate place. Read into that, a place by themselves, a place of solitude. Calls them to rest a while. The word there, the Greek word anapa'ao means to cease from labor in order to recover strength. So read into that, refresh yourself. Jesus is calling his disciples to a period of refreshing. The reason he states is that they're coming and going. He's using this present active tense, meaning there's just non-stop activity. There's no, there's no slowing this down. Morning, noon, and night, maybe even in the middle of the night, the disciples are always meeting these needs. There's no stopping. Or as we might say, life is full. So much so that they don't even have the leisure to eat. That word for leisure means a a block of time or an opportunity, I want you to read into that, margin, dead space. The point of this passage is that Jesus is interrupting good activity. They're not doing anything wrong. They're expanding the kingdom. They're actually obeying the words of Jesus and Jesus himself interrupts good activity so that they can create margin and rest in a place of solitude. So here's what we mean by rest, using, using the words that Jesus is, uh, is throwing at his disciples. When you hear rest, I don't just want you to think taking a nap, although that might be a form of rest for some of you. For others, it's not. What I want you to hear when Jesus uses the word rest is replenishment. You're being filled somehow. For some people, that means you need to Go home and take a 30 minute power nap. That's not a power nap, huh? 10 minutes is a power nap. 30 minutes is like a extended, anyway. Looks different for different people. For some people struggling with depression, maybe sleeping is the wrong way to go. Maybe for them, replenishment means taking a hike, getting some sunlight. But make no mistake, when Jesus tells them to rest, he's wanting them to be replenished with life. Jesus is saying to them, you have no margin to replenish. Margin. I really love that word margin because I love books. And margin is often that phrase used to the... the negative space around the text of a book right you got the text in the middle of the book got my bible right here and then right on the edges there on the outskirts is dead space it's just it's just empty space that's margin and if you uh, geek out on typography and type and all of that stuff um, which I don't expect you to do I'm weird really weird that way But if you study that stuff, you see that margin in in book design is really important. If you don't have enough of it, the book feels crowded. It's hard to read. And without margin in our own lives, our lives will feel crowded. And Jesus, on the heels of great ministry, is telling his disciples, you need more margin. Come away by yourself. Find a desolate place. You haven't even had the margin to eat. Dr. Richard A. Swenson, who wrote a book called *Margin*, argues that burnout, which some of you are facing right now, or have experienced recently, or are on the verge of experiencing, uh, we sometimes think that burnout just comes from working too hard or working too long. Swenson, Dr. Swenson, argues. Actually, the opposite. This is burnout is not necessarily caused by working hard or even too much, but it comes when too much margin is lacking over a period of time. He would go on to say that stress is often more affected by uh, the psychological than the physical. And he would go on to say uh, physical hard work, for example, is not really a stressor at all as long as one has some control over it. A person can work 12 hours a day, six days a week for an entire life at physical labor and suffer no ill effects as long as that person has some decision control over the work schedule. Margin. Uh, doctors just saying what Jesus has been saying to his disciples for a long time. I know good stuff is happening, but you need to carve out some space slow down, and to rest. And if rest means replenishment, what I wanna ask you today is what does replenishment look like for you? Because it's, it's at this point, I, I, I'm not gonna just give you three ways to rest because we're all different people. Every single one of us is gonna be different in this regard. Rather, I wanna give you an analogy to think through what replenishment like, might look like. One of my close friends used to keep me accountable to this by likening it to cylinders in an engine. Or if this works better for you, kind of those water reservoirs. Water rushes through the reservoir. Creates energy, I like the engine better. And he's like, Chris, imagine your soul as a six-cylinder engine. And I was like, I imagine it more like a V8 small block, but whatever, we'll go with the six, whatever, okay. Six cylinders, and he says, those six cylinders, that's how God made you. And I want you to identify each of those cylinders. Each one is something that is life-giving to you. I want you to identify six of them. And I want you to do the same. If you got a journal, if you got your notes on your phone, if you can memorize it in your mind, begin to identify six cylinders. Now here's what I mean by a cylinder. When you're in that space, it brings you life. You come alive. And I wanna give you a caveat here because I do this all the time. I want you to resist framing these with spiritual, churchy vernacular or giving me answers that you think I want you to give me because I'm actually not listening to your answers. So stuff like, oh, well, I actually really love volleyball, but I can't put that down because that's not spiritual enough. I'm gonna put down reading my Bible for 12 hours at a time. Yeah, that's a good one. Doing ministry nonstop for 20, you know, whatever it is. The answers you think other people want you to say, I want you to scratch those out and I want you to be real. What brings you alive? I'll give you an example, personal example for me, and these change like, these change like every year they seem, but right now, reading. For me, one of my cylinders is reading. Another one of my cylinders is getting my kids to laugh at me, which is a, which is a project, and it brings me great joy. Date nights with my wife, Brianna. Uh, Another one is uh, creativity. I like creating. and So when I get opportunities to do that, it brings life to me. Uh, For a time, it was surfing. When I got into the water, that was a cylinder. Right now, it's just hitting the gym. Uh, And another one is basketball. And I found that when those cylinders are all firing, uh, even if my particular week is, is fairly hostile, uh, I'm, I, I'm at least 80 to 90% good. I also feel guilty telling you that with full disclosure because pastors aren't supposed to do that, are they? Basketball? I remember going to spectrum this was like 5 years ago i ran into someone at the church he was on the treadmill he was like lazo i didn't know you went to like you did stuff <laughs> and i used myself as as an example i think he thought i like spent most of my time with candles at the monastery or whatever but i'm like yeah i go to the grocery store and like pump gas in my car and all sorts of stuff but look that's just, that's not just me right It's church culture. I imagine that's true for all of you. When you read through the scriptures you've created or we've created or someone's created this sense of what we're supposed to do and we use spiritual vernacular and what other people are doing, what we think other people should be doing for us, but look at the words of Jesus. He tells his best disciples to take a nap and eat something. Yeah, he tells them to do other stuff too, ministry, but... Cares about the body, cares about the soul. This is really important. What are your six cylinders? If you were to fill them out right now, and I hope you are, what are those six cylinders? What brings you life? My follow-up question, and you can only do this when you have that, those, six engi- uh, uh, those six cylinders identified, Are they all firing? In my life, sometimes all six are firing, sometimes five are firing, sometimes four, sometimes one or two. What happens when you're driving a car? I'm just gonna continue this analogy. If you're driving a car, and all six cylinders are firing, that thing's gonna run smoothly. If one cylinder stops firing, it'll still get you where you're going, but it'll sputter a little bit, be a little bit annoying. What if only two cylinders are firing? Has anyone ever had that happen to him? I have. Car shuts down. I use that analogy because it's so perfect for the way that God designed the human soul. And God is gonna call you to ministry, he's gonna call you to deep responsibility, he's gonna call you to church community, he's gonna call you to all of those things, but he also calls you to joy and delight and Sabbath rest. And at the risk of overcomplicating what rest means, let's remember that rest just means replenishment. And as the gospel writer Luke would remind us, if our fathers being evil will still give us a loaf of bread instead of a snake, how much more so will our heavenly Father give us good things to those that ask? God loves you guys. He loves you. And some of you are spinning your wheels because you're spinning your wheels trying to prove to him that you love him. He doesn't need you to spin your wheels. For some of you, maybe all of you. I'm just gonna go with that last one, all of you. Jesus is inviting you to something radically different than what the world's scripts have been in your life. Come away by yourself to a lonely place and rest. Jesus interrupts their activity to carve out margins so that they can rest in solitude. And perhaps for some of us, we have these idols cloaked in spiritual language and churchy vernacular that are there to make our idolatry more acceptable. But Jesus is saying to us today, on the 4th of July, your idols are not acceptable. I love you too much, and I want you for myself. Come away. My last point is that rest sustains us for the deepest kinds of ministry. Verse 33, I won't read this entire section for the sake of time, we already read it, but we are are stepping into one of the most radical miracles in the Gospels, where as soon as they come away from that mountain, the crowds begin to assemble and they're all hungry. And the disciples are like, "What are we gonna do about this mad crowd of people that's hungry? And you need, to, we need to send them away to go, uh, to go eat." And Jesus, I love Jesus' statement. He's like, "You feed them." Can you imagine the disciples right now? Twelve of them. There's five thousand, at least five thousand men there. They're like, "Feed them with what? Like this is gonna cost two hundred denarii. That's almost a year's worth of wages." In other words, they're baffled. They're like, where are we gonna come up with the resources to feed a crowd like this? Jesus is all, sit down. Let me show you the master at work. But I love this because Jesus doesn't just do it himself. He paves the way for the disciples to do ministry. He asks them, how many loaves do you have? In verse 38, 38. Go and see, and when they had found out, they said five and two fish, and he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass, and so they sit down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and, by t- and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and Jesus says a blessing, breaks the loaves, gives it to the disciples, sets it before the people, and they divide the two fish among them all. Read into that sentence. This is Mark, like, he's, being, he's not being very obvious. He's just so casually just stating, that Jesus and the disciples divided two fish among five thousand people. Just oh, and this happened. Moving on. And those who uh, and they took up twelve baskets. That's what was left over of broken pieces of bread and other fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. See, there is always a danger that we hear Jesus command to rest, and we use that, again, with churchy language, to resist taking personal responsibility for our lives in our church. Like, I'm just gonna rest for the rest of my life. But Jesus always replenishes us so that he could send us back out into mission, and to send us back out into mission from a full reservoir, not from burnout. We rest from our work, but we also work from a place of rest. And one of the best places to work from is from a full plate of rest. But what I want you to notice is that it's only after that place of rest that Jesus commissions them to do the impossible. They were already working, right? They were praying, they were preaching, and they were laying hands on something that's fairly easy to do even if you're not with Jesus. Like, you can mimic those actions, but in the second part of the story, he actually says, feed 5,000 people. Now he's calling them to something that requires supernatural power. And he only does that after they have stopped to rest in him. That's the title of my sermon today, Our Best Comes From a Place of Rest. Before rest, they did a few cool things, but after the rest, the disciples are directly involved in a miracle. Out of five loaves and two fish, they feed, a proct- uh, they feed thousands of people. Scholars will say that the Mark just lists the men, 5,000 of them, but being Jewish families, they probably had wives with them, and they probably had at least one kid, so that's at least 15,000 people. Maybe 20,000, got a big family? This is unbelievable. Now I want to end and wrap up this sermon by identifying where the place of rest is because this is more than just taking some R&R or a quick vacation, right? What makes this different is that our rest comes from a deep place in Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus is using parallel language that we If you read through the book of Exodus, we see with Moses himself where he's organizing Israel, just like Jesus did in groups of hundreds and fifties, and he refers to them as a a group of people without a shepherd, and he's using all of this language that's drawing us back to the Exodus. What's happening? Jesus is comparing himself. He's locking into our visual memory that Jesus is doing something that's just like Moses. What did Moses do? He rescued people from slavery and brought them into the promised land. Jesus is making a subtle case for himself. He's saying, I'm the better Moses. Not only that, but Mark arranges this material in a way that juxtaposes it against Herod's meal. Remember that? Herod threw a party, but that party ended in death and self-indulgence and greed. And Jesus' party ends up showing that he is the true shepherd king of Israel who can feed a crowd. Jesus isn't just feeding a bunch of people, he's making a case for himself by saying, I'm the one who can bring true rest. So yeah, eat a snack. Play some volleyball, go to the beach after church today, do whatever that is, but do it as a person who rests differently than the rest of the world. How is that? It means that we don't stop on the weekends for the same reasons that the rest of the world does. We stop even if there's work to do because we recognize that Jesus Christ is the king of the universe. And even if I do sleep on Saturday, even if I do carve out some margin to be with some friends, even if you do uh, stop or fail or drop the ball, the universe will continue and Jesus is still in control. That's where our rest comes from. It comes from the kingship of Jesus Christ, who says to us, I don't need you to run the universe, I don't need you to expand the kingdom. I want you. And I'm calling you to ride shotgun in my vehicle as we do it together. But the requirements are, you remember who's God. I am, you're not. Come away by yourself and rest a while. Or as you would say in Matthew 11, verse 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I'm gonna ask uh, Andrea and Mackenzie to come back up here as we sing together. And as we do, I wanna give you a contemplative practice to guide our initial time of worship, and that's to go back to those six cylinders. Do you know what your six cylinders are? What's God inviting you into? And to make it as simple as possible, I want you to focus on one thing this week. What's one thing you can do to slow down and to replenish your soul. Or maybe a different question for you is, what's one thing you can say no to? It's probably gonna be a good thing, but what's one good thing you can say no to in order to be still before the Lord? And how can you be more aware of God's presence in those moments? As we respond to God in worship through song, I want to uh, draw your attention to the communion packets to both sides of the building, also outside on the uh, black table out there, to remind yourself that Jesus Christ is king. Every time we take of the bread and we take of the cup, we're reminding ourselves that Jesus Christ died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and as Romans chapter one would say, he has been declared the son of God and the king of the universe by the resurrection from the dead. So we're not just eating a snack, We're proclaiming that, too, with the rest of the saints. Jesus is in control, and if he's in control of the universe, he can be in control of my uh, my life as well. There's space in the building. If you want to kneel on the carpets in solitude, if you want to get in front of your seat, if you want to go off to the corner, whatever you want to do, let's carve out space and be with Jesus as he ministers to us in the way that only he can. Amen? Amen.